Hey everyone, it's Derek here. Really excited to share with you a recording of our first live show, which we did at Learning at Play, which was a symposium for games for learning and social change, which we did uh, at Vanderbilt. Um, just wanted to give some thank yous really quick uh, to Derek Bruff from the Center for Teaching and Helen Shin from English for inviting me and Scholars at Play to sort of be involved and to uh, help organize and run this great event. Um, also wanted to thank our keynote uh, speaker, Mark Sample from Davidson College. And finally, all the co-sponsors, the Curb Center, the Center for Teaching, the Center for Digital Humanities, and the Comparative Media Analysis and Practice Program. Um, so without any further ado, sit back and enjoy the show. Today is the 8th of November, 2019. We are Scholars at Play. We're is here this our three-year anniversary? This is... Hold on. Don't spoil it. <laughs> sorry. Okay, sorry. Um, so this is... Uh, we're live at, at uh, Learning at Play, which is the cur which is being hosted at the Curb Center. It's put on in partnership with the Center for Teaching and a bunch of other great supporters here. Uh, the CMAP program, the Center for Digital Humanities at Vanderbilt. Um, so uh, as Kyle already described... Uh, we're sort of a, a, a graduate student-run podcast. My name is Derek Price. I should introduce myself. I'm in the German, uh, Russian, East European Studies Department. I'm also in the Comparative Media Analysis and Practice Program. Um, maybe everyone else can introduce themselves as well with these kinds of words. Sure. Uh, my name is Curtis Mann. I'm also in the German department with Derek, and I also study video games. I'm Sabina Med. I'm a PhD student in the Philosophy Department, and this is my third time on Scholars of Play. I'm wow. excited to be here. That's yeah. a record. Um, and I'm the resident historian and person who keeps making us talk about historical video games, That's Kyle right. Romero. <laughs> yeah, um, so Kyle's already uh, gave a bit of an overview of the podcast. Basically, it's structured like a mini seminar. Um, each episode, we take uh, two texts and a game, or sometimes two games and a text, like today. Um, the text will often be a scholarly article or a book chapter that's relevant to a theme that we've selected, and then we try to bring it into conversation with pieces of criticism that are sort of circulating and people are talking about in the contemporary moment, um, and, and tie that together with some sort of sometimes recent, sometimes not so recent uh, video game. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, history. We've, like Kyle mentioned, we've done uh, we've done two actually now, two great episodes on Three. on the relationship between games. Three, three. I guess if you count the two the, parts. I mean, it was a two and a half hour long episode, yeah, so it's a little bit longer. <laughs> uh, we're we're going to try and keep it less. This than will that definitively today. be our shortest episode ever. It has to be because it has to be. <laughs> uh, and in the interest of that, I will say that we are talking today about the relationship and the opportunities and the challenges of using video games to teach history. Um, we're going to be looking at one text by Lisa Gilbert. It's called Assassin's Creed Reminds Us That History is a Human Experience, <laughs> Students' Senses of Empathy While Playing a Narrative Video Game. This came out 2019 in the Journal for uh, Theory and Research in Social Education. Um, we're also going to be talking in, in relationship with this article. We're, of course, going to be talking about an Assassin's Creed game. We chose Assassin's Creed 2 because... I mean, I'm 30 now, so that means that I'm actually kind of out of touch a little bit. So this is we 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 went back into the archives of Assassin's Creed, and I mean, Kyle and Sabine have a lot of experience with the series in general. So we'll talk about Assassin's Creed 2 in specific, but also a little bit about the series more broadly. And then Curtis and I are going to sort of focus our attention on a more recent game from 2017 by a, a team at Charles University called Attentat 1942. For those of you who don't speak, I guess it's now French, Polish. German and Czech, where attentat means assassination. But that's the, again, weirdly, we have an assassination theme for our <laughs> podcast. But uh, that was not super intentional, but it just turns out that's it. It was intentional. <laughs> it turns out it was. It's an important historical fact. So we're going we're gonna to be talking about uh, Gilbert's text first, and also at the same time talking about our, our experiences with the Assassin's Creed uh, 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 game series. And then we'll finish up uh, sort of touching on this more education-based game, 1942, and finish, hopefully, with some time for open discussion and Q&A with y'all. And I, what I was getting people to vamp to do was set up that microphone where you can come and say your question. Your voice will be on the podcast. So, And we, we will have a Q&A. We'll also have live tracking of questions uh, through Poll Everywhere, if you see up there. So if anyone wants to text or uh, send in a question while it's happening, I will be tracking that. If you just want to make fun of us, yeah. comment on how handsome some of the presenters are. <laughs> That'd be okay, too. You know, also, you know, good stuff. So um, so join us there if you wish. Um, let's get someone to speak besides me. Um, who would like to give us a quick summary of Gilbert's article? I think we. I think it would be good to give a quick overview of it. Maybe Sabine. 
Shit. <laughs> Are you saying that because I'm like frantic? Uh, so the Gilbert piece came out in 2019, I think. Yes. And she is picking up on a string of scholarship on sort of the ways in which alternative media can help with uh, learning history, mm -hmm. uh, ways in which alternative media teach history that's different from teaching in the classroom. And she's focusing on the game series Assassin's Creed. Um, she does mention that her sample size is 14 <laughs> high school students from an all-boys Catholic school. Right. Um, so it's an interview-based study, right? She's, she's going and she's making interviews at this, at this Catholic school. At this Catholic yeah. school. She interviews these kids, um, all of whom have familiarity with the Assassin's Creed franchise, particularly the third game, the American Revolution game. Um, but they've also, they also touch on other games that they've played in the series. So she is trying to see whether video games like Assassin's Creed historical, video games with a historical narrative can help produce what she's calling historical empathy, right? right? Which she defines as the combination of perspective taking and care. Mm -hmm. Care in the context of caring about uh, moral dilemmas of particular historical periods, caring about people in those periods, mm -hmm. um, caring for the issues that were of interest to those individuals at the time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and her findings suggest that students in general appreciate the proximity with which they can uh, take in, understand, learn history and the interactive element of video games that is absent from the classroom. Um, one of the main uh, findings was that students really appreciated the capacity to engage with or be introduced to multiple perspectives mm -hmm. um, in contrast to the sort of uh, univocal narrative that is presented in a social studies uh, or global history class. Um, Two of the main threads that will probably um, feature in and out of our conversation across us talking about Assassin's Creed and then later Atenstein 1942 is this that dialectical relationship between historic uh, presentism and historical thinking, um, as well as this phenomenon of multiple perspectives. What does that offer to a video game? How does it um, aid in our understanding of history? How does it hinder our understanding of history? Um, what is the bias element that students don't believe is present? How is that actually informing the ways in which we consume history in video games? So I will... I just want to yeah. do a quick maybe show of hands. Who here is familiar with the Assassin's Creed franchise? Okay. Cool. Okay, good. Um, but still, yeah, maybe a quick primer. I have a short summary. Excellent. That yeah. was to <laughs> totally not pre-written. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, by the way, if you all want to go ever to the Assassin's Creed wiki and try to understand the actual meta plot of the series, it's wild. Yeah, it's, really it's wild, and I wanted to do this episode where I had a cork board and could like <laughs> draw lines between the first civilization who are maybe aliens, maybe, and that Adam and Eve were slaves. It's weird. Um, okay, so Assassin's Creed is an action-adventure stealth game franchise created by Ubisoft designers Patrice Desolais, Jade Raymond, and Corey May. Uh, as of now, there are 11 games in the Jeez. main story uh, of Assassin's Creed with also dozens of DLC, uh, other games, books, graphic novels, etc. Um, the series presents a world similar to ours, but one defined by a centuries-long struggle between two shadowy institutions, the Assassins and the Templars. Uh, so it kind of maps on to our own reality, but with this kind of secret war going on in the background. Um, and the gameplay of the actual game varies from the present day, where you're it, it changes over the games, but kind of involved in the secret war um, and using a technology called the Animus, which is about DNA, it's weird. You get to go to the past and relive um, the actions of your ancestors um, where you're also kind of engaging in the shadowy war. Um, so you can go relive memories in places like Italy in Assassin's Creed II or the Middle East in Assassin's Creed I, the Revol Revolutionary France in Assassin's Creed Unity, among many others. So the series is kind of a blend of historical fiction, science fiction, uh, with actual historical events mixed in. Fantastic. Yeah, I know. Great. I think that, <laughs> that double layer of simulation that we're talking about will come up again with Ottentot. Yeah, you know, You're not actually playing history, so to speak. You're playing the memories encoded in the genes of an ancestor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, Sabine, you already touched on some really key concepts that are that are um, important to Gilbert's study, but I wondered if we could drill, like, just quickly drill down on a few of them. So, the gameplay is you run around in crowds, you climb up walls, you are stalking your prey of some sort or some person who has information that you need, 
and then you you do your assassin. You thing. do the assassin. You thing. do the assassination, yep. and then you try to escape. So um, uh, the the moment to moment gameplay uh, is is full of that. There are also in many of the game's cutscenes. Mm -hmm. um, which do a lot of the the sort of narrative work of connecting. The, the one key thing is that that so uh, Gilbert highlights this combination of linear and branching narratives that sort of come that she sees coming together in Assassin's Creed. What everybody have any thoughts about this kind of what, how how she understands the Assassin's Creed Creed game and this idea of linear and branching narrative and what that affords maybe for history. Well, in terms of branching narratives, she makes a distinction between the a, a gameplay in which the narrative branches but you end at one conclusion versus games in which the choices... So a branching narrative is a game in which the choices that you make as a protagonist alter your uh, the options that you have as you as you continue through the game. Right, The ways in which you answer dialogue will change your relationship with certain characters in fundamental ways that will, in some cases, alter the outcome of the game itself or alter the extent to which you can complete a game mm -hmm or alter the extent to which you can actually delve into the game. The amount of cutscenes that you're able to access, the amount of information um, within the game that you're able to, to access. Yeah. Um, so there is that distinction, and I think for, for the Assassin's Creed franchise, as far as I know, there's one ending, yeah. and the branching, the branching narrative is less based on character choices as much as I think um, the branching happens in terms of your transitions from present day to past, to present to past. Mm -hmm and how those two timelines intersect in really interesting ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think the, uh, just, just to, the, like to, to also add a little bit there too as well, um, you know, Gilbert sees the linearity of narratives, the, the sort of idea of like a linear narrative in a novel or, or other media as giving, providing psychological depth. Mm -hmm. And then the branching allows for interactivity, for, for multiple outcomes. And what might be interesting here for us when we get to the history bit is the idea of multiple perspectives, that like for, that because you can interact with people in different ways, you might be exposed to different perspectives on a, a certain set of historical events in a way that is she argues, different from this sort of linear thing. Although, again, they're kind of coming together here in Assassin's Creed. And I think this is particularly notable. So the game that Gilbert is talking about, uh, in particular with these students, is Assassin's Creed Three, which, if anybody has ever played, is the one about the American Revolution. And right. so it has some kind of built-in accessibility, I think, for maybe these, like, you know, 16-year-olds who probably don't know a lot about the Crusades, you right. know, in Assassin's Creed One, but are generally familiar with like, okay, I know who George Washington is. Like, I'm aware who Benjamin Franklin is, right? I guess, right. kind of. Right. Um, in Assassin's Creed Three, if you ever played it, actually does something kind of neat, where in the first fifth of the game, you're playing as this guy named Hatham Kenway, and he, it's kind of like a jerk, but like, you're playing around, you kind of get the idea, like he's an assassin, he's killing people, he's got like the secret blade thing. That's you, Yeah, you get it. Yeah, you're right, he's got that. Part of and the then game. like, Spoilers. It turns out, like a fifth of the way through the game, that he's actually a Templar, and you play the rest of the game as his son. And so it's the first game to kind of, uh, in media, like shift you through who, to who you're playing. Um, and so it kind of presents in a weird way in the game itself, like, okay, now you're a new person who's half native, half British, um, named Connor Kenway, and like this is a kind of complex politics of like the characters interacting with each other, but also like you as the player have now inhabited multiple personalities and have kind of like multiple spaces. Right. Um, which I think Gilbert says for her students, it really, uh, for the people she interviewed, it like showed them like, oh, I, I, maybe I should like think about how the British thought of in, in the Revolutionary War mm -hmm. as opposed to just from the American side or right. like what the experience of an enslaved person was uh, during the Revolutionary War. Um, and I think, you know, it's also worth mentioning, we're talking about these interviews and what these students learn from this game. These are play experiences that, that happened outside of the classroom, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So th this is not mediated by, like, a, a teacher or any sort of other pedagogical tools. Yep. Gilbert is trying to find out what's happening with players of these games in the context of, of a classroom, but actually the, the playing itself is happening at home. Right. And this is one of the, I think one of the, one interesting thing about Gilbert's study is she frames it as... Students are already playing these games in the classroom. They're building ideas about history. Um, uh, and so one important challenge for us as educators is to say, okay, what are they actually, what kinds of meaning are they making out of mm -hmm. these historical artifacts? Um, and, and what kind of ideologies, what kind of biases? There's a great question here about bias that we will get to in, in a little bit. Um, what, kind of, what kind of baked in bi uh, ideologies might be in there? What are they taking away? Are they being critical? 
what are they learning? All of these all of these questions are central to her study just because they're already doing it. So we need to find out what what they're what they're making. And as we'll games. see when we when we start talking about Atentat, a game which was designed for the classroom, which is designed with pedagogy in mind versus Assassin's Creed, which is certainly not. Um, the ways in which students interpret what they're doing as education versus recreation. And that's very apparent in Gilbert's piece when she talks about, so since it is her talking to students who play video games in their free time, they see it as a mode of entertainment, they don't consume the information as information, right? They're not really combining it with their history education in the classroom. They see it in many ways as diametrically opposed to their pedagogy in the classroom. There's instances in which students talk about how, oh, well, I would never have learned that maybe the church's monopoly on power was not a good thing. <laughs> or that the Pope at, was bad. Or that the Catholic, Pope yeah, could have been bad. At a Catholic like, school, right? Rodrigo Borgia, like, the famed bad Pope. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right, but yeah. so, so there's this disconnect. There's a, she uses the term cognitive dissonance um, and the students not really interpreting the information as being informative, right? right? They're seeing it more as something separate from what they're doing in the mm -hmm. classroom, for better or for worse. Yeah, and this... I think I think I just want to hit one more concept before we start getting into our, our our ideas about Assassin's Creed and how they resonated with Gilbert and the interviewees' experiences, which is just the idea of empathy, right? Um, so so there's two there's two different ideas of empathy that that are sort of driving Gilbert's approach to this. One comes from James Paul G. Nailed it, not ghee like the butter. Uh, <laughs> That's in our notes. <laughs> he has an idea of empathy about video games, so he's a, he's a scholar uh, of literature and 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 of games. Um, and and G has argued that that narrative games offer these chances for human sense making, perspective taking. Um, that 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 offer the potential to sort of create empathy for other people's situations and perspectives in life. And and what Gilbert does really well is contrast G's idea of empathy with. Uh, uh, some some Sam, really Sam Weinberg, yeah, Sam mm -hmm. Weinberg, and also Barton and, and yeah. Levstick historical empathy, which she she basically says, do these line up? Basically, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, does someone want to talk a little bit about the idea of historical empathy and just sort of contextualize that with maybe against G's idea of empathy? Yeah. Well, I'll do the Weinberg one. Great. Good. Uh, so Sam Weinberg is a. Um, he's not a historian, but he's a uh, like a. a Educator, I guess, or he's like studies education, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and he's so he made it. He wrote a book called Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts um, about uh, history pedagogy. And basically, what he said was that like a big problem in history pedagogy is that it, historians are teaching their students to like empathize with people, and that that is actually making them not good at history. <laughs> so it's saying that, <laughs> yeah. Um, in short, that you know, you by saying that like we can accurately you know, capture the emotional valences of someone from like 200 years ago is just wrong, mm -hmm. is his argument. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just incorrect and is gonna make students think, oh, well, my experiences are comparable to an enslaved person's. Mm -hmm. and, and, like, they're not, they're just not, it's just not. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> it can't be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, the, uh, who are the other people? The Barton and, and Levstick. Yeah. And so I think yeah. they kind of nuance that argument a little bit mm -hmm. and say, you know, say it is true. Like we should never say that we have exactly comparable experiences to people in the past because the entire world was different. Structures were so different. Institutions were shaped so differently. Um, but a level of empathy does allow for like greater engagement with the past. Mm -hmm. And I kind of agree with this take yeah. that we do need a level of empathy in order to, I mean, get students interested at all, right? They're like, mm -hmm. they should be able to engage with these things, but also to like uh, feel a level of connection with people in the past that allows you to understand um, progress and where we've come from and where we can go from here. Yeah, and so we've already got a great question up here is that, I don't know, I've never felt empathy for people that I assassinate <laughs> in Assassin's Creed. So maybe this is a great opportunity for, the students say regularly, I, in the cutscene, I didn't realize George Washington liked blackberries, or you know, you see through the cutscenes, you get close to people, but also you do mostly just kill them. So I'm really curious yeah. to hear from our panelists um, if you developed any form of empathy for the characters and the experiences that you had with Assassin's Creed. I have a, a, a side story about this. And Great. Then, sure. So uh, last year, I can't remember, um, we invited to Vanderbilt... Maxime? Maxime Durand, yeah. who was one of the historical advisors for the Assassin's Creed franchise. So he works at Ubisoft Montreal. And um, he's not a professional historian, but he, or like a, you know, 
with a PhD, but he is a professional historian in the sense that he like works professionally to get the developers like historical facts and data. So like, what did you know Marie Antoinette's dress look like, right? Something like that. Um, and so he commented that the thing that really pissed him off about Assassin's Creed Three was that he thinks Charles Lee a guy in history was super cool like he loved Charles Lee and he's like this guy's great and he was a hero and amazing spoilers and Assassin's Creed 3 he's a bad guy <laughs> he's a Templar and he's kind of dumb yeah. and you kill him um, and that did not happen in real life right other spoilers mm, for right. history I guess um, <laughs> <so> I, <laughs> history spoilers the lore of the yeah. past <laughs> uh, I say spoilers a lot in my classroom and my students never laugh that's not uncommon though um, but yeah, so I think for him, like even for him, this guy who like is involved in the actual game development process, he was like, no, but I like Charles Lee. You know, like, like, mm. like, I like because you have this level of like historical connection where these people exist, right? Um, you can have like historical attachments to these people as like you find they're them in, like, influential or important or fascinating, and then you get to kill them in the game. <laughs> it's probably not great. And you have to kill him, right? Right. Because the game is linear. Like it, to progress in the story, the only option is to kill him. Yeah. So I think the question of empathy is really interesting in the context of the first Assassin's Creed game. Um, and so one of the ways in which I prepared for this talk is I read an article by uh, a scholar, Mert Komal. Uh, the title of the article is Orientalism in Assassin's Creed, Self-Orientalizing the Assassins from Forerunners of Modern Terrorism into Occidentalized Heroes. And this was published in 2014 in Teorija in Praxa. Journal. And the basic idea behind this article, Comel's thesis, is that there is a self orientalistic subversion in the first Assassin's Creed game that mediates a positive identification of the Arab slash Muslim other, and which results in the gradual transformation of the assassin protagonist into the heroic protagonist of the. Um, of a, of a traditional Western video game, right? So for a, a very brief bit of background, the protagonist of the first Assassin's Creed game, the one that came out, oh my gosh, I don't know, 2009, 2007? Yeah. Um, it was based on the life of the 11th century uh, Hassan Sabah, who was the founder of the Nizari Ismaili state in Iran, modern day Iran. So the Nizaris are the largest segment of Ismaili Shia Muslims. And uh, Hassan Sabah was also the founder of the Fedayeen military group, which was known as the Hashashin, or the Order of the Assassins, right? So Patrice Desley, so originally the first Assassin's Creed game was meant to be another Prince of Persia game. Fun fact. Oh, Fun fact. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was meant to be hmm. a Prince of Persia game. And Patrice was really sort of taken in by the allure of the, the sort of aura of mystery of the Order of the Assassins of this period, which is mythologized even in the 12th and 13th centuries in, in Western literature, right? Um, and so he starts developing a, a Prince of Persia game in which the protagonist is an assassin because he, he just finds this, this historical phenomenon really interesting. And then the game kind of derails from the Prince of Persia franchise and becomes a standalone Assassin's mm -hmm. Creed game. Um, and it's in many ways built on a mythologization of this Templar versus assassins dialectical struggle, which becomes one rather than set in the Crusades as a sort of uh, imperialistic struggle of Christianity versus Islam and territorialization of the Middle East and North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula into a larger struggle between good and evil a in this case. Transhistorical. Exactly. Yeah. A transhistorical, yeah. not even transhistorical. <laughs> I mean, you have aliens. At, oh, yeah, there's you know, aliens. Aliens get introduced <laughs> at some point. Um, but this larger struggle between good and evil, which takes the form of freedom versus authoritarian control, right? The Templars um, are presented throughout the game as seeking um, a really sort of militant form of uh, authoritarian control over, over all peoples on Earth, right? And the assassins represent this drive for freedom and, and liberation and, and truth. Um, and so there's this weird mythologization of the actual historical struggle between the assassins and the uh, and the crusaders, um, which for Mert Kamel results in the self-orientalizing of the protagonist of the Assassin's Creed game. Right, you play as the Arab Muslim other. It's really interesting that this game is coming out in the midst of you know the. Uh, invasion and in the sort of hot seat of the post 9-11 political mm -hmm. milieu. Um, but you play as this, as the Arab Muslim other. I have some thoughts about that since you're not really, you're half 
Middle Eastern, half yeah. European, um, such that you come to humanize the Arab Muslim other, right? Um, and the point of the perspective is very sympathetic towards the assassins throughout the game series, but especially <coughs> in the first game, which is so so centered in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, I, I say this is where the, the game becomes less of a historical game for me, mm-hmm. right? Is through this mythologization of that struggle of the assassins versus the Templars. You kind of get away from the real material historical conditions that generated the Crusades. You kind of get out of the church politics and the theological struggle that's been taking place um, up between well, let's say the eighth century and the twelfth century, you lose all of that once you, once you, um, sort of abstract away from abstract away from it, but also yeah. create and 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 invest in this the aura of mystery around the assassins. It's so he's he's saying it's a self orientalizing, but it's also another form of orientalizing, right? It's another form of otherizing the Middle East. Um, just instead of as barbarians, they're these really magical, mysterious, hooded figures who roam the streets and climb walls and jump into haystacks. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so in, in one sense, there's this, there's this development of empathy with the Arab Muslim other, but it's, can we even still call them a historical, a historical other? Right. Yeah. Is it a historical empathy or is it a sort of fascination with uh, a created, a manufactured intrigue? A sort of uh, like uh, you know, in, in a certain way, it's an it's an empathy within a character, right? Mm, it, right. It, that that's sort of you know a lot of the students, and maybe we should now transition yeah. to some of the uh, qu- just hit two of findings from <laughs> Gilbert. Um, a lot of the students, what they really love about the Assassin's Creed games is that they feel close to, they get to actually mm-hmm. see and hear history, right? They they develop emotional relationships and like detailed knowledge of the aspects of the character of George Washington, whether or the question of how much it maps onto the real George Washington is one that they don't necessarily think too much about. Um, uh, so, so they like this immediate access, uh, uh, but it may not, again, as Sabine alluded to a little while ago, there might not be that critical reflection the way they might turn it towards their schoolwork. Curtis, I, yeah, I just that? wanted to say the, a big part of the draw of these games and kind of the spectacular element is not necessarily the narrative which is at times very problematic, um, but it's actually the way that the kind of environments that are set up, the the amount of detail, this kind of the vast, you know, spaces that you can explore that are open to you. So there's also just the the visceral kind of access to, to these spaces that where I think a lot of the pedagogical value might actually be located. You don't have to necessarily play these games as interactive movies. You can also right. just look at them as spaces, which I think like interactive maps almost. Yeah. Um, so I think just just to throw that out there yeah. before we get into yeah. into the findings, it's also worth noting that there's a rich narrative. There's also a very rich kind of environmental storytelling that's happening Absolutely. here too. Absolutely. And, th- and this is something that Gilbert kind of talks about, which is the fact that the, you know, gameplay map like literally maps on to reality in in very real ways, right? Like that they like did a lot of work that Maxime Durand did, you know, to like make sure that Notre Dame looked like it should or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Keep going, go, y'all. And uh, so that can, oh no, Derek died. You guys can't see it, but Derek died, oh no. Okay, um, so. But it's a video game, so he has another life. <laughs> Here he comes, there we go. Um, yeah, so the fact that, you know, cart- cartographically, the game can map onto the real world can potentially be a problem because it presents like a kind of um, sheen of reality where students are like, wow, this is the real thing, right? Like I'm really seeing, um, you know, the world as it used to be. Um, and so this is why she suggests at the end of her piece and where we're gonna talk about right now is that <clears throat> students are doing this, right? Students are engaging with these games in this way. And because scholars have, you know, to some extent kind of d- dismissed video games as not really accurate, which is true, um, you know, <laughs> or like not, and but not super important, um, students are not turning a critical eye to these things um, in the way that, you know, they could be. Uh, and so that should be our goal is to say, you know, obviously video games can exist out inside and outside of the classroom, but that in all those spaces, students should at least have some critical lens towards viewing them. Yeah. And I'll just add really quickly before we go to the findings, then move on to Ottentat 1942, yeah. is that just because there is this, I would say it's more of a tokenizing than um, than a, a fostering of historical empathy for the Arab Muslim mother. It's a tokenizing of one particular 
Arab Muslim mother who's not even fully Arab, right? He's half Arab. He's He speaks with a very distinctively American accent, yeah. whereas all of the other Middle Eastern characters have very heavily stylized Middle Eastern accents. He reads so is very Western. He's like extremely Western. He's And he, you know, he's very much the sort of brooding, individualistic, mm. dark, mysterious Western hero, right? Um, but that's not to say that and drawing back on Curtis's um, note on the environment and the sort of visceral aesthetic element of the games, which is which is the, really the big draw for for most for so many. I can't mm-hmm. say most, but for me certainly, there is something to be said about presenting a, a space like the Middle East as as beautiful as Assassin's Creed does. Right? It it really provides a nice contrast to what was going on in two thousand and seven. You turn on CNN and you just see bombings. Right. You see the Middle East aflame, you see it in smoke, you see Damascus in rubble, whereas in Assassin's Creed, you can walk through Damascus and it's stunning. It's colorful, it's bright, you can hear Arabic in the game um, in a way that doesn't sound demonized, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't otherize the language as something barbaric, right? It's not it's screamed and like through a, you know, badly transmitted through a microphone. That right, right. Like you see, of yeah. You see, you see, you know, children running around playing games, speaking Arabic to each other, and people on the street just interacting, buying groceries, buying produce, buying rugs. Um, so there is, you know, despite the mythologization, despite the ahistoric sort of abstracting away from the actual uh, moment of the Crusades and all of the ideological struggle built into that moment. There is something, I would say, deeply um, positive about the games, that it does force you to see the Middle East as, as it was, yeah. right? Yeah. To, to an extent, to an extent that's very different from seeing the Middle East as it is today, mm-hmm. or at least in 2007, in flames. Yeah. I want to. I want to just hit briefly the five key findings from Gilbert's study, and then I think we we, we want to maybe say one thing about those, and then move on quickly to Attentat, so we have room room for questions at the end. Which is, um, as I, I mentioned before, there's this sense of immediate access to history, the human connection. Uh, uh, there's also this idea of perceiving multiple perspectives. Um, a lot of the interviewees suggest that, oh, I didn't, I'd never thought about the past that way, and it was mm-hmm. because they had this emotional relationship to a character that they were able to take that position seriously, and it had not, uh, apparently had not been represented to them in their daily lives. So that's that's an interesting thing to hit there as well. Um, but they also, and this is this is for me, this is what sort of drew my attention to this piece initially, students showed both a, a high willingness to let the game rewrite their idea of history, and also of themselves, the idea of, they were, they're a Catholic school, they were like a little shocked about the idea that the Pope could be bad, um, as Assassin's Creed 2 sort of, demonstrates. Uh, And then um, a lot of the students, you know, uh, Gilbert calls a section theorizing about historical accuracy, but the students didn't, the students pretty much all theorized the same way, which is that the developers are talented. Ubisoft consults a mass of historians or something like that. That's the way they describe it. And it must be right, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't the biased narrative that I'm getting in my social studies uh, uh, (laughs) class. This is you know, this is probably much, pretty much the past as it was. Um, and if that doesn't scare you, <laughs> right, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I don't know why you came to this panel. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, so that that I would say is one of the challenges to doing a sort of not bombastic, but really a, a beautifully created three D simulation of a space with this, with the with the prestige. That, that a big company like Ubisoft lends to that kind of create, creative work um, is that the quality of the simulation, the quality of the crowds and how, how smoothly you climb up the building and how convincingly the characters are voice acted lends a sort of extra credibility to its historical portrayal. And there's also stuff about the, the way the students mentioned that they're, because there are multiple perspectives, it must be true, right? Mm-hmm. So like there's not reflection, I mean, it's, good to acknowledge there are multiple perspectives on history, but like there's also probably a need to try to corroborate those perspectives and try to, uh, you know, corroborate them with an archive of evidence uh, for that. Yeah. One yeah. last comment. Yeah. One last comment. And then yeah. I think this will transition us nicely into Attentat is, is Ubisoft's own sort of self aggrandizing over its, its historical accuracy, right? They, they are, they pride themselves on, on consulting historians and aiming for architectural accuracy and, and historical accuracy, but not quite in the same way that the developers of Ottentown 1942 yeah. have done, mm-hmm. right? And with that, I think 
I'll hand it over to Curtis to kind of explain. (laughs) (laughs) Try to give us some more on on how Otten Tot came to be and the sort of principles guiding that that game's creation. Sure. Um, Thanks. Um, Maybe we should just start with the production then. Yeah, So it was released in 20... Otten Tot in 1942 was released in 2017 by the developer uh, Charles Games, which consists of scholars and students from Charles University in Prague, historians from the Czech Academy of Sciences, and independent artists. The development of Attentat was supported by the Czech Ministry of Culture and the Technology Agency of the Czech Republic. So we can see we're, we're dealing with um, you know, federally funded and, and, and university funded mm-hmm. uh, gaming here. So the, the lead game designer actually is a professor at Charles University. His name is Viet Sisler, and he has also published an academic article on the development of Attentat 1942, which you can find on gamestudies.org. His article provides us with a detailed look into all of the research that was conducted, as well as all the as well as all of the historiographical considerations that were made leading up to and during the production of this game. So, a, a significant part of this process was collecting actual testimonies from people who lived through the, the focus of this game, which is the Nazi backlash following the assassination of Heydrich in 1942. In, right, in, in the Czech in, in the, Czech lands during World War II. Yeah. yeah. So I guess in this way, the game development team was able to reference real personal stories in order to create the fictional yet still very realistic storylines of eight characters that you speak with in this game. And that's the, that's the bulk of this game is speaking with people who knew your grandfather. And, um, and what you're trying to do in this game is figure out why your grandfather was sent to Auschwitz and then uh, Buchenwald. Yeah. And so you can see just from the, the setup that you're dealing with is the really you know, heavy subject matter. Um, and there was also an, an extensive involvement of historians in the, in the design process. We're actually talking about a completely, I think, different kind of setup than we see with something like Assassin's Creed. Yeah, and this, I mean, this is this draws this like draws our attention to the different kinds of political economy that are at work in producing mm-hmm. a an entertainment product versus producing like academic scholarship. As Kyle reminded me earlier. <laughs> The Academy also has its own restrictions and, and limitations I don't think that's true. and ways. Oh no, that's right. It's actually just a totally free space. Yeah, it's you a can totally do whatever free space. You, want. you can do whatever you want. There's lots There's of There's no restrictions. Everyone yeah, who's been in the Academy knows that that's true. Um, uh, <laughs> so like the but the in a more serious note, the they allow for different kinds of products, right? Um, there's a certain extent to which Assassin's Creed doesn't get made if it's about the Holocaust. Yeah. And if it if it requires if it takes the principles of design that the Charles university team set for themselves. So one important thing that they established early in the design process was that they would follow certain design principles, which I think these these design principles also extend into sort of theoretical imaginings of history and how this game might be used in the classroom. So they they, um, they wanted to include multi-perspectivity, uh, which you get, you interview a lot of different kinds of people uh, in, in, the, in Prague, basically. Uh, strives for authenticity. Uh, it's looking, um, constructivism, maybe, Curtis, I'm not exactly sure what constructivism means. That was, it, a, you, you have an active role. That's right, in, you're participating in, in, in yeah. the creation of this, of, of unveiling the story of your grandfather. Um, inclusiveness and contextualization. Um, two things that stuck out to me when I, when I played through this game recently was that, um, one, it does some really interesting things with different, modes of representation. So it is a computer game, but it will use different, it'll use documentary uh, footage. So it'll look, you know, it it's, looks grainy and black and white and it's like Nazi tanks moving into Prague or something like that, or, or Nazi soldiers stopping someone on the street. Um, and that will sort of often set the context of a certain scene. But then the interviews that you have where you're gaining information about the past and trying to piece together this story about your grandfather are all recorded with modern cameras and are shot with actors. Um, they speak Czech, but and they're English subtitles, but there's a clear medium difference in the documentary footage versus the contemporary day interviews. And then when you, the player, have a chance to interact in a sort of more, quote, gamey way where there's little mini games for you to play, that often is presented to the player in a sort of comic book style animation. So you'll have like literal literal panels, and the play, you know sometimes the figures in the panels will exceed the panels and go into the gutter, or you know there will be they'll do some of the work that comic, uh, uh, the medium of a comic can do to to uh, as part of its form. And that I think 
you know, this this separating of different modes of interaction with the game through media sort of suggests to the player, you know, am I dealing with something that definitely really happened and it's important that I know that this is true? Or is this like the question of how someone hid flyers from the Gestapo in their home is not a is not a historical fact that it's important to know the exact truth, but there's an experience to quickly trying to hide the flyers, which gives you this sort of emotional affect of like, oh my God, the Gestapo's here. I have like ten seconds to hide these. Where can I hide them? This is a good place. No, that's a bad place. And that 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 is a, a moment where I think you maybe develop uh, develop some of this care part of historical mm-hmm. empathy that we that we mentioned before. Yeah, um, we should mention you know you're you are trying to, I guess, find find out what happened to your grandfather and in a way find the the truth about his story. And while you do that, you're talking to other people and you actually engage with, and then I think become invested in their stories as well. And Mm -hmm. by the time you walk away from this, you have at least these, the stories of these eight characters also, you know, on your mind and and also, Mm -hmm. you know, having been a big part of the, the gameplay experience. So you're, you're kind of on this one track to learn about your grandfather, but you meet all these other people. And we should say that all of those, all those uh, conversations that you have in these kind of vi- interactive video sequences, they're all based on actual video testimonies that this game development team carried out in advance of, of this project. So they actually conducted these interviews in advance, like I think like 30 or so people. A lot, and then yeah. they More than you see. Using that, all that information, they then created these fictional storylines. Now, Curtis, you actually played this game with your students. Right. Uh, um, can you tell us a little bit about that experience and like what they noted, what they thought of the game when they played it? So yeah, we, we played this game uh, as part of a, a two-unit session where in the first unit we were uh, investigating the uh, Shoah Foundation's Visual History Archive. So this is in a, in a course about the Holocaust. And so we were looking at, at the Visual History Archive, uh, which is housed by USC. And so we we, we looked at that for one session. The follow-up session was this game, which I thought, you know, complemented that nicely because you had basically took the same kind of testimony aesthetic or format and moved it from, from one digital interactive medium into another. And there's actually a lot of the same kind of work or inter- interaction, I would say, that's mm. happening in both of these experiences. Yeah. Just, you know, now to the students' reaction to yeah. all of this, I mean, that's kind of my take. Um, the, the, the students thought, well, Ottentot 1942 really isn't a video game. And so I thought that was fair, you know, because it it doesn't really have that well, it doesn't have that avatar, that that mm-hmm. kind of interactivity, that level of simulation that we're used to, especially if you're playing a lot of games like Assassin's Creed, right? Pretty much anything else, Zelda, Red Dead Redemption, Big um, popular <laughs> games, right? Um, and I think that was, and, and we know this from 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 Viet Sisler, the game designer mm-hmm. who who wrote about this experience. They weren't ever going to try and. Uh, obtain that level of simulation. They weren't right. even going to go in, in that direction. They would want something more controlled, like a interactive video format with, you know, branching dialogue trees. Right. You know, and th- that's as far as they were going to take that. They they wouldn't try and simulate that history. If anything, you're going to play with the discourse about the past. You're not going to play directly with that past. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at our clock, and we're at 11:58. So I'm I want to I want to open up the floor very briefly, maybe for five minutes, if we can extend a little bit beyond our panel time to uh, questions. We've got a lot of great ones up here. If you put a question up here, you really want to put put to us, please feel free to just say it again. And also, if you walk up to this little microphone here and you speak close to it, then it'll be on the podcast. You can so, be encoded forever digitally. Yeah, if that's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone, uh, feel free to, or, or just, you know, I'll repeat your question if, you, if you'd prefer to just remain seated. Please, anyone. Yeah, so if I understand you correctly, you're saying that Ottentot doesn't have a fail state, which I hear is sort of a major mechanic of any game. Yeah. So it sounds like it's more of an interactive narrative, right? Yeah, I, I mean, there, are, there is a conclusion where you, you find out what happened to your grandfather, but there are varying levels of, of I guess, clarity when Detail. it comes to that story, to, to his actual story, right? So if you spoke with this person but didn't really fully explore that, that interview or, or that, that, that... Or if you, like, alienated that, them somehow. Exactly. Right. If you, if you said, said the wrong thing or, or, you know, then... They'll shut the door in your face. Right. So there, there, just, yeah. you can have a, a, a fuller picture or... You know, um, but, but there is there is a story there, and, and they were very clear about this. I mean, you, you again, if you look at their, if you look at Sisler's article on, on this development process, there there is a story, right? So you can't 
through your interactivity change what happened. That's right. not what they're interested in doing, mm-hmm. right? But you can, you know, by your choices in these discussions, you might learn more or less about right. what actually happened. The the game that I liked playing the most was trying to do a good interview. Was trying to ask the right questions, mm-hmm. and so it was gaining more information. They actually have this nice little summary screen at the end with little bubbles that are filled in or not filled in based on whether or not you receive that piece of information, right? So they abstract it and they concretize it and reify it a certain, to a certain extent to give you a sense of feedback. Um, You also earn coins in certain parts of it, which allow you to repeat dialogues and try and get more information out of that interview that you've already conducted. Say they slam the door in your face right away, you can spend a coin to choose the other option. So that's a bit of a not a total fail state, but it sets you back a bit. There are some gamification a little bit options yeah. in this game aspects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Understood by what you were saying about the tokenization of the protagonist in Assassin's Creed, I very much understand the westernization of the character. I'm interested. How would you design a game with a strong central protagonist that didn't tokenize that experience? Mm-hmm. How would you design a historical game with a protagonist wow. that didn't tokenize the yeah. history? So the question that, is, how will we design yeah. a, a historical a, a historical game with a lead lead protagonist yeah. that doesn't tokenize that yeah. person? And I think that resonates with the question that was asked up here too. I'm not sure if it was you, but someone said like, how can you develop like a historical video game of like the oppressed that is not like the one, you know, valorous oppressed person who escapes slavery, you know, right. like, mm-hmm. like how do you, you know, accurately uh, depict something like this that's not valorizing. Of it and yeah. not just the single person, yeah. Lisa Bean. So in, in one sense, I think, in, in, when we think about it in this way, the tokenization is, is inescapable. Um, I think what I would say for a game like Assassin's Creed, my, my bigger concern with it isn't the tokenization of the protagonist, but the tokenization of the protagonist as relatable only insofar as they are sufficiently like me. Like me being the uh, typical Western video gamer, right? Mm -hmm. So Altair, the protagonist, is half European. He doesn't have a Middle Eastern accent. He's very light-skinned compared to the other, um, uh, the sort of the the other characters in the game, Mm -hmm. um, both in terms of your, uh, your, your target list as well as your allies, right? Um, he is he's very visually set apart. And in that sense, there's this weird sort of, okay, he is a relatable, likable character. Would a player relate to him or like him as much if he were more fully Middle Eastern? Mm-hmm. That's kind of where my interest lies. Yeah. Like, did they have to make Altair sufficiently European in order for the game to do as well as it did, to perform yeah. as well as it did? I think, yeah. It's a really important question. Let's you you wanted to jump in. Yeah, um, this goes more to that, but I think it will uh, carry us back to the to the initial debate as well. There's this uh, uh, weird, uh, compelling moment in Fritz Lang's Hangman Also Die from 1943 that is about the Heydrich assassination, where uh, uh, Lang felt compelled to actually show uh, Heydrich after the assassination in, the, in his hospital room right before he died. But he was very afraid that that would create a form of empathy in the audience. Mm. Mm. He's the hangman, he needs to mm. die. And the film is all about sort of um, siding the audience basically with the resistance at the time. And in order to show this image, the hangman needed to be shown, but the audience was not supposed to have empathy, was not supposed to identify. Mm-hmm. He kind of had uh, Hans Eisler who kind of do some very atonal sounds at that point that really were very <laughs> disturbing. Yeah. So it created a kind of distance, a disturbance mm. basically, because the last thing that should happen was empathy yeah. with the slain uh, uh, hangman, basically. Mm-hmm. And that sort of makes me wonder, sort of, um, when mm-hmm. we talk about empathy, uh, well, empathy with whom mm-hmm. uh, and with what, uh, and um, also from what kind of perspective, and I think what the sort of Lung's um, sort of contemporary example reminds us of is also that maybe not all multi-perspectival approaches to history or politics are good. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Heidegger's perspective, I don't want to have that one. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe there's very little to learn, so it's sort of to kind of fetishize, yeah. sort of multi-perspectively yeah. in a sort of <coughs> assumption of uh, pluralism or something like that might be in certain kind of histories. Uh, not so good. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sort of concerned about that. Just to reiterate your question on the mic, um, your, your question is just basically about uh, the question of who we should empathize with and where mm-hmm. the boundaries for that yeah. might be. And I think there's a really interesting uh, comparison to that in Assassin's Creed, which is that, you know, you're murdering people left and right, you're killing people, no problem. Um, but whenever you kill one of your targets, this weird thing happens uh, in all the games where you, like, 
go into this weird other digital world and you get like 30 seconds to just kind of like hang out with them and like hear a little bit of their story and like and <laughs> hang out with them. Yeah, you're like, like, you're like clutching them yeah, as you're like yeah. them. their throat. Yeah. But yeah. then they'll like also be walking around. Like it's it's weird. Um but I, I think <laughs> it's to give you that sense like it's to give you that like, you know, empathy for sometimes the person's like, "Oh, like I didn't mean to do this thing." And you're like, "Oh, I feel bad." And sometimes they're like, you know, an asshole. And they're like, okay, "Cool, I killed this guy." Um, <laughs> it's good. And I think I think they were like trying to give you that space but in juxtaposition to like I killed like 70 people <laughs> on yeah. the way to kill this one guy, but they're like, feel really bad for like Robert de Sable. I'm like, no. <laughs> like, like, like sometimes you just should. Like, like yeah. Or there's a difference in how, um, I'm not saying you should assassinate people. Uh, there's a difference in how. Um, just don't get know, caught. Yeah. <laughs> in how people are given uh, agency and the ability to kind of defend themselves in the game. Yeah. Mark, Mark had, a, had, a, had a thought. Yeah, this really isn't a, a, a question. It's a comment that uh, connects the two games together. I don't know if you were aware of the, um, the Beat Seisler. Um, Probably. So. The, I'm so the bad. designer of I'm iPod 1942. Yeah. Uh, a few years earlier, he wrote a really good article called Digital Arabs in the European Journal of Cultural Studies mm -hmm. where he talks about representation of Arabs in video games, mm -hmm. talking about Assassin's Creed. So yeah. there's a really... Oh, like, wow. He approached this first from the scholarly perspective and right. then decided, oh, let's make a game that is actually trying to get at some of the problems he saw with representation earlier. See, we, we knew that. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was all intentional. <laughs> actually, no, so that the, just for the, for the listeners, um, Bitsiesler has also worked on the idea of Arab representation in games, which we didn't actually know. Which we all <laughs> knew. Which we all knew. He's actually designed games in, in that realm, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I forgot the title of, the, of, the, of that piece, but it's, it's a game about We'll put the, it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, we'll yeah. look that up. Thanks. Thanks Wait, for that. Can I just... I think oh. uh, we, we do have to draw to a close. Thank you all so much for... for I'm sorry, Curtis, That's please. That's right. No, <laughs> no it's, we'll, I'll talk we'll, to Liz later. I, yeah. we'll, we'll continue it. <laughs> we'll, we'll continue discussion after the panel, but thank you so much for uh, uh, giving us your attention and inviting us here. Thanks to Derek Bruff, Jay Clayton, everyone, blah, blah, blah. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, we'll record <laughs> the thing later. That's it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much.